listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, the Asian stock markets seem to be rather stable at the moment, despite the big, client, the big declines on Wall Street overnight. The SX200 in Australia is off a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 now in Japan is flat. Uh, the Cosby is down just 0.2%. Futures markets indicating the Hang Seng is going to rise about a quarter of a percent at the open in just over uh, an hour's time. Do please join me again tomorrow morning. We'll bring you all the latest updates in the world of business and finance on Money Talk at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat. Hugh Chiverton and Steve Vines coming up in just a moment. The weather forecast for today. Sunny periods, very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees in urban areas. There is a very hot weather warning in force right now. And the outlook is for it to be persistently hot in the next couple of days. Maximum temperatures of about 32 degrees or above. Few isolated showers. 29 degrees right now, 80% relative humidity. It's 8.31. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. The United Nations Middle East Peace Envoy has warned that the conflict between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza is escalating towards full-scale war. Tours Venezland was speaking after a day of intensifying violence. Palestinian militants fired hundreds of rockets into Israel, with some targeting Tel Aviv. Israel carried out heavy airstrikes on Gaza, including the deliberate destruction of two apartment blocks. At least 30 Palestinians and three people in Israel have been killed in two days of fighting. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned Hamas and Islamic Jihad over their actions. Hamas and Islamic Jihad have paid, and I tell you here, they will pay a very high price for their aggression. I say here tonight, their blood will be on their heads. The Hamas leader says the group is ready if Israel seeks escalation. The U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm says there's no need for motorists to hoard petrol following Friday's cyber attack that shut down a major pipeline serving 50 million consumers. Let me emphasize that much as there um, was no cause for, say, hoarding toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic, there should be no cause for hoarding gasoline, uh, especially in light of the fact that the pipeline should be substantially operational by the end of this week and over the weekend. Pump prices have risen in some areas with long queues forming at petrol stations that haven't run dry. A senior Biden administration cyber specialist told the U.S. Senate Security Committee that cyber attacks like the one on the Colonial Pipeline were becoming more sophisticated and aggressive. The largest cashmere sapphire ever to appear at auction has been sold for 3.9 million US dollars in the Swiss city of Geneva. The 55-carat gem is set in a diamond and sapphire brooch that belonged to an heiress of the Guinness Brewing Fortune. Cashmere sapphires are among the rarest coloured gemstones in the world. They were mined for just five years following their discovery in the 1880s. Olivier Wagner speaks for the auction house Sotheby's. It's a fantastic piece. First, because it's set with two exceptional stones, a 55 carat and a 25 carat sapphire. The 55 carat is the largest ever to appear at auction, cashmere sapphire. And uh, it remains uh, all the time in the same family. So it's, it's an incredible uh, piece with, uh, I mean, cashmere sapphires are the best ones, uh, the more sought after us. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today is Steve Vine. Steve, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Today we're talking about population issues in Hong Kong and the mainland and the Olympics on local TV. China has seen a population growth in 2020, according to the official census released yesterday. However, the number of new births has fallen for the fourth consecutive year and the share of Chinese senior citizens expanded. What do the statistics then mean? For China, is it good to have a falling population? Is the age distribution an issue? Is it a crisis or an opportunity? Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, one recent survey says most local women don't want to give birth, saying they don't feel they have enough money, space or time to raise a child. Is that how you feel? And how would that affect Hong Kong? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, bankchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us, and our number is 233-88266. That's 233. 88266. Uh, joining us for our first topic, we have with us now Professor Paul Yip, Chair Professor uh, Population Health in the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Jean-Pierre Cabestan, who's the Chair Professor in the Department of Government and International Studies at the Baptist University. And John Bacon Schoen, Director of Social Sciences Research Centre at the University of Hong Kong. Once again, our email address is uh, backchat at rthk. Dot HK. Let's get straight into it, maybe with the, with the, uh, the, with the mainland uh, survey uh, uh, census first. Professor Kampistan, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much indeed for, for joining us. Um, is, this, is this a big problem? I, I mean, because uh, some people are calling this a, a crisis uh, in uh, China demographics. Uh, other people have said this is managed, this is to be expected. Uh, how do you read the, what we learn from the, of the population structure in China? Well, yeah, the census has, has uh, uh, provided a lot of uh, very rich and diverse results regarding the uh, population in China today. I think there is a mixture of uh, good and bad news. I mean, the good news is that actually the Chinese population is uh, plateauing and will slice, uh, gradually decrease in the coming years. So uh, uh, that's probably a, a good news from an economic and, and human point of view. But uh, the, the major um, time bomb, I would say, or... or issue is the aging of the population. Uh, we, uh, the number of people over 60 has increased to 19%, uh, 20% now. Uh, and in the forecast is by 20, uh, 2050, it may uh, include more than 35% of the uh, Chinese population. So uh, that, that's a big, a big issue and that will have a lot of implications in terms of uh, social policies, uh, whether, you know, I mean, the, 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 the need to to, to, to move the retirement age from 60 to 65 for men and then from 55 to 60 and maybe 65 for women is getting, is getting very urgent and there is no other options for the government to, but to, to move, uh, you know, to change the uh, retirement age. Now, the, the, the other interesting result is, the, is that urbanization has become even more uh, dominant than it would have been, you know, forecast earlier with nearly two-thirds of the population now living in the cities. You know, between 20, 2010 and 2020, you have an additional 236 million people living in the cities, so 64% of the population now live in the city. And that's a major change and precedented change in the, in the history of, uh, of China. Of course, you have widespread... Uh, uh, discrepancies and, and, and changes uh, in original changes which are interesting to, 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 to uh, underscore. I mean, the fact that you have more people that live in the eastern area of the country where, where, where you have really uh, prosperity and you have uh, 
so number 40% live in the people the, in China live in the east. Uh, one of the big you know, concerns, I think, for the authority and for, for China is that northeast is um, China, what we used to call Manchuria, is, is, uh, is really depopulating and, and people are moving elsewhere in, in, in the country. Uh, sex ratio as gender bit, I mean, but, but the, the and I, we're going to come back to that um, later. I think that you still have more male than women, and that's a, still a big issue. Uh, and the trends may be uh, uh, too, too, too recent to really uh, make a change in the uh, sex ratio of the population. Um, now, the other thing, of course, is education, which has uh, really improved, uh, but with, uh, 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 by and large, uh, but the education level is much higher than before. Is you know, but but with with big discrepancies, you know, we have well, interesting to know that in Beijing, you have forty two percent of the people with a university degree, as opposed to Guangxi with uh, just eleven percent. So you see big big changes also. And I and I wonder if I could ask you because there is some question over this: how reliable are these statistics? Because of course, population, as <laughs> you know very well, is a very sensitive issue in in China. And of course, there's also this concern that China will no longer be the most populous country yep. in the world, will be overtaken by India. So do you regard these um, statistics as being free of those considerations? Now, it's interesting because, I mean, the, uh, in Chinese, it's called the Lu uh, Lu. you know, it's uh, non-registered people in China. And uh, the estimation is that the uh, number of people not been uh, taken into account in the census has decreased to 0.05%. So it's a very negligible percentage. But, you know, it, the, the, as you know, I mean, the Financial Times announced a few days ago that actually the population started to decrease in, in 2020, uh, while the, uh, the, the official census has still indicated a, a slight increase. Uh, I think, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the decrease will start, uh, I think, actually this year, in 2021. Uh, but, it, but it's very much... Um, uh, you know, it's very highly likely. With the, if you look at the fertility rate, is 1.3 uh, children per per, per per woman. But but you it's, do it's think very, these so statistics the are, are credible? Do you? You do mm-hmm. think they're wholly credible? These statistics. Um, I think if you, yes, in a way you can. Comp- well, by and large, I would say yes, uh, because we have series of uh, censuses. You know, 2020, 2000, an earlier census, um, and um, and. I think it's uh, it's clear that the Chinese population is going to be, you know, smaller than the uh, Indian population, maybe by by the middle of this decade, and uh, to decrease to one, maybe 1.3, 1. 1.2, 1. 1.2 million uh, at the end of the century. Uh, so, uh, and that's that's uh, now India's population may decrease eventually after 2050, but it will take much longer. One thing I don't quite understand is uh, you've had a one-child policy. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's being weakened now, watered down. But you had a one-child policy in place yep. for a long time. Yep. You have two parents, you have one child. You would expect a falling population, wouldn't you? Why, why didn't that happen? Except for ethnic minorities, I guess. Why, why didn't we see uh, the Chinese population, um, you know, decreasing? Oh. Well, uh, it's as, well it, it, I think the increase has been rather uh, uh, you know, 0.5 percent per year, so 5 percent in 10 years. It's it's very modest. So I think there are still people in in you know in the uh, uh, suburban or rural areas having more than uh, one child. 
and as we know in cities, the impact of the uh, relaxation of family family planning has, has been has been pretty uh, pretty disappointing, I would say, because number of uh, children by by women has continued to decrease, and the and the, the, the uh, incentive to have uh, more than one child is uh, is getting is not, is not there. So uh, I think the fertility rate uh, uh, is is decreasing very quickly. Um, now it's maybe more re- recent. Uh, in the sense that, we, you know, in, in 2019, the UCC had a 1.6, officially 1.6 children per woman, but, uh, you know, we have to double-check with all the series of uh, figures whether actually the fertility rate, is, uh, which has been announced, is uh, fully reliable or not. But 12 million uh, uh, births in 2020, it's, uh, you know, it's a big, it's a big decrease to even to, to uh, against uh, 2019, you know, 18 percent decrease. And I wonder if and we could not, ask, um, I wonder if we could ask Professor Yip about this, because yep. as, as you mentioned, it seems that the biggest headline that comes out of these statistics is the imbalance in the population, the growing elderly population, the shrinking of the workforce. Is that your takeaway, Professor Yip? Do you think this is the most significant thing we're learning here? Well, I think when we're looking at the um, latest uh, development, I think, um, yes, I think aging, I think um, it is not new. I think it happened to uh, all of the country. But I think what happened is in terms of the size and the magnitude, I think also the speed of the problem. Uh, so what we see in China now, uh, I think due to the one-child policy enacted in 1979, and then now it seems that I think the uh, the impact, I think, is really kicked into the population now. So now we are going to see a diminishing, I think, number of the people who are aged 30 and, and 40 now, and then which is, is the prime economic um, thing active group in the population. And also due to the life expectancy, I think, improvement. So I think uh, when you mentioned about why the TFR is so low, why the population is still growing, it is because of the, I think we are living longer now. So I think the people, I think now what we see, uh, we, we, are, we are going to see the increase of the number of aging population. It will increase quite rapidly. And then, then that will have significant impact, I think, on the pension and the social welfare system. I think in China, and because China is a huge population, right? so, so I think that then this problem, I think it can be spilled over, I think, to other areas too. And and the main one must be the economy. I mean, will there be enough people to keep the economic engine going? Well, I don't uh, uh, worry as much uh, uh, as it was because now you can see the uh, I think the automation. I think. There, there's a lot of improvement. I think China has moved away from this labor-intensive economy or this manufacturing activities now. I think towards uh, be a bit more uh, the smart city type. I mean, which require less uh, uh, the number of labor force. So I think what we see, I think, is more more important. I think to be able to develop a an economy which is I think sustainable which does not require a lot of labors and then to uh, do the automation and then that uh, possibly I think we can avoid a hard landing of this aging problem in China.
Uh, also, as we mentioned in the introduction, uh, a recent survey from the, the Hong Kong Women Development Association uh, found that 56% of the, uh, the respondents said that they didn't want uh, to have a baby. Uh, they said uh, there wasn't uh, enough uh, space in Hong Kong, there wasn't enough uh, time, uh, they didn't have enough uh, money. Uh, we're also joined, as I say, by Professor John bacon Schoen from the University of Hong Kong uh, Social Sciences Research Centre. Professor bacon Schoen, good morning to you. Uh, good to talk to you again. Um, you know, this is uh, just one survey, but I mean, there have been a lot of sort of indications that uh, 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 people are reluctant to uh, have families uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, comment from Vic uh, on an email uh, who says, Dear Backchat, dear people who don't want to raise a family, to be honest, raising kids is not always a pleasure or a perpetual party as you envisage how life should be lived. But in the process, you do, build, you do build resilience and character, which helps you in other fields. End of the day, that's my opinion. Everyone free to make their own lifestyle choices. Uh, that comes uh, from Vic. It seems that many people uh, uh, are, are concerned about uh, uh, having a family and or having uh, more than one child at that. Um, what's your impression of that survey and um, fertility well, rates at the moment? The, the research methodology of that survey is, is rather problematic. It's not a representative sample. It's primarily their members and people on social media. But that doesn't mean that the conclusions are wrong. But in fact, the last reliable uh, survey was done actually by Poyip's uh, oversight at, with the Family Planning Association in 2017, right? So, <coughs> so that's, I think, the reliable information. And in fact, that time, they focus on, on married women. So that's another slight problem with this survey is that they've got both married and unmarried women in there. And in Hong Kong, there is very little fertility outside of marriage. So that's not true everywhere in the world. So if you look at, say, Sweden, they have just as many babies outside marriage as inside marriage. But in Hong Kong, there's very few babies born outside marriage. So it's like the first question is, do I get married? The second question is, if I do get married, how many children do I want to have? And then the final question is, how many children do I actually have? So you have to sort of think of it in in stages like that. So again, the Family Planning Association survey, I think, is, is reliable information. So I assume maybe Paul can tell us that they're planning another one in 2022, which will update that information. But it, I mean, the, the concerns are, are clearly genuine. In other words, whether the government is providing the necessary support for family life in their policies uh, and whether people have sufficient space. But the other, and the other thing we have to think about is, I think, uh, as was mentioned earlier, in the context of China, the issue of urbanization. So almost every city in the world has relatively low fertility. Right? Generally, the assumption is that people in the countryside, in the, in the rural areas, are where they have, are much more likely to have more children. But the odd thing, of course, in Hong Kong is we don't have a much of a rural area. We're essentially almost entirely an urban environment. So anyway, but that doesn't take away the issues that they've raised. In other words, clearly there are many people in Hong Kong who are discouraged from having children uh, for different reasons. So it can be about whether I can afford it. Although, to be fair, we need to point out that in the last few years, the government has started finally to, to properly subsidize kindergartens. So that was one of the big holes in the past of the policy was that, that schooling, at least in theory, is close to free in Hong Kong, but until relatively recently, kindergartens were expensive and you had to pay for them yourself.
But in general terms, is it not the case, both on the mainland and here, that the economic imperative is the one that hovers over everything? In other words, people really wonder, A, whether they can afford to have more than one child, or B, whether they even want to have one child because it will affect their standard of living so drastically. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at Hong Kong in recent years, um, around, I think it's around half of, of married women wanted to have two children. But then, you know, you've got, I think, about a third who only wanted one child. So, you know, that clearly, and very few people wanting more than two children. So, so that clearly does make a difference, right? In other words, even if people do, the, the number of, of uh, married women who said they wanted no children, I think, was less than 10% in 2017. So most married couples do want children, but most them, not that many want uh, more than two children. Sorry, many can I just stop you there? Child. Did you say it was 10% and it seems to have risen right up to a third? That's enormous. Well, I'm saying this recent survey is not... You can't oh, interpret that reasonably because they're including unmarried women in their survey, and it's only a survey of their members. So we can't conclude that that the whole population of those results can be uh, can be extrapolated. But I think it's clear the case that the number of women who don't want children is increasing. But I think again, the the other issue is whether women are going to get married in the first place. And, and as I said, in other places. Getting married is not necessarily a barrier to having children, but in Hong Kong it has traditionally been that way. There are so few children born outside of marriage. We, we can return to this uh, later, perhaps after nine o'clock. But just one thing is, I mean, we used to talk a lot about an ageing population and we used to talk about how, uh, you know, the Hong Kong economy will have to face up to this and there were, you know, how the, uh, the MPF and all kinds of other systems, health systems and so on, would have to adapt to, uh, to, uh, to a, a different uh, kind of uh, uh, demographic with, a, with an ageing population. We just... I've, well, I think one of that's the kind of fallen off the agenda, the is my impression. Department used to project that, uh, that employment for older people would, was going to continue to drop, but it hasn't continued to drop. And one of the reasons was because they previously did not account for education. So for people who don't have much education, it gets harder and harder to get employment as you get older. Mm. Whereas for people who are well-educated, uh, many of them at least are capable of working uh, well beyond 60. Whether they want to work beyond 60 is another question, but at least uh, they are still valuable in the labor market. So I think the, that, that's, that's less of a problem in Hong Kong than it was in the past. But clearly it will be a problem in the mainland for some time to come because their population who's preach, approaching 60 uh, are still, most of them have relatively low education. So until they get to the point where most of the population is well educated, that is going to be a bit. That's going to be more challenging for their system, and that people won't be able to work when they get to sixty, even if they want to. Professor Kabastan, do, do the authorities want a bigger population in the mainland, or do they want a smaller, richer population? Uh, I think it's more the latter. Although they have never made, in my view, any official. Um, Announcement. They know, I think, very well that the population is going to, you know, gradually decrease. How fast? That's that's maybe the issue. I think the 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 uh, the, the uh, f favored scenario, f you know, uh, for the authority will be 
uh, to have a stabilization of the population around 1.4 billion people. So I think it would be uh, for a number of reasons, because of aging, because of the, the need of workforce, uh, and, and because of the side effect of this long family planning policy, they, they would like to, I think, encourage um, the fertility rate to, to increase. Uh, but they know very well that it would be um, impossible to compete with India, for instance, if, uh, you know, being the most populated countries means uh, something or anything today, um, it's, uh, uh, I think it's something which is out of question for, for China. But uh, um, no, I think the, the, the trend, uh, unfortunately for China, for the rest of East Asia, if you look at Japan, Korea, Taiwan, the fertility rate has uh, gone down a lot. And uh, uh, it has to do with lifestyle, it has to do with urbanization, of course. Um, and um, and raising children in in China is is something which is um, also expensive. You know, education is is expensive in cities, and uh, so they will. I mean, the authority will need to introduce a lot of incentives to make sure that you know the fertility rate doesn't continue to to drop over the next uh, few years. But uh, I think. Uh, the, the nightmare scenario, to, to answer your question, for the authority will be to have, uh, you know, a population which will decrease to maybe less than one billion people at the end of the century. That that will be, uh, and some some forecasts have, you know, announced that maybe the Chinese population in twenty in uh, two thousand hundred will be around seven hundred thirty something million. But but I, I, it seems to be rather unlikely. It's more around a billion, I think, uh, at the end of the century. And, and Professor Yip, I wonder if, I'm sorry we're dodging around here between the mainland and Hong Kong, but if we could just return to Hong Kong for a moment. Um, Professor Baconshone says that your institute uh, produced the last um, definitive figures on uh, matters of birth and what have you. First of all, is he right? Are you planning to um, update those figures anytime soon? And can I ask, also ask you, because this is something which particularly affects Hong Kong, what would be your thoughts about the effect of immigration, which is clearly rising in Hong Kong at the moment? Well, I think for the, uh, uh, I'm the chair for the research committee for the Family Planning Association of Hong, of, of Hong Kong. And then what John has mentioned about this KAP study, the knowledge, attitude and practices of the uh, fertility and the sexual education of the men and women in Hong Kong, we uh, do the study every five years. So the next one we are going to do it is uh, 2022. So actually we are forming the committee now. So don't worry, I think we are going to uh, provide the most update and most accurate figures I mean, for the community. Um, for the next question you asked about the migration, yes, I think it is a, a, it, it is a big concern and which has unfortunately has not received sufficient attention or concern by the government uh, because what we are uh, looking at now, the migration now, it has moving, I think, to a younger population now. So what happened now, we are seeing uh, all other countries, uh, they have, uh, they are very interested to our 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 university graduate, not only the family type, you know, it is the, the single time, I think they are just graduate from 20 or you know, they're just age around 22 to 25. And then actually these are the people, I think, are the prime economic active group. And also they are the ones who are likely to form the family. So if they're going to move, so we're not only going to move uh, for that particular one, but the potential, I think, the family formation and all the, all the, all the other members too. 
And they're likely, and they're likely to be better educated, are they not? Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, so far when we look at the own migration, I think data in Hong Kong, I think those own migration, I think on average, right? I mean, the quality, I think it is better than the one who stay who stay behind. Now, I'm saying on average, right? So, so this outgoing group, I think it will be um, uh, some sort of, I think they are diluting, I think the human capital of of Hong Kong. A so brain drain. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and will they come back? Because of course that was <laughs> well, I think the last in, in, I think when you look at in 1997, I think those people, they are coming back because they are not sure what is going to happen. But now, uh, at this time, when they are going, because they are pretty sure what is going to happen, and then there's something that they don't like it, so I think the chance that they can they will come back, I think it is very unlikely, unless I think we are going to improve, I think, the local situation substantially. I think they address, I think, their concerns, why they are leaving first now. Right. Because it's happening, right? It's not a question whether it's going to happen or not. Uh, well, Professor Yip, many, many thanks for joining us. Professor Paul Yip, there, Chair Professor of Population Health in the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. And many thanks to Professor Jean-Pierre Cambastan, uh, Chair Professor in the Department of Government and International Studies at the Baptist University. Professor John Bacon-Chone will uh, stay with us. And we're also going to be uh, talking about... So we're talking about the situation in Hong Kong. We're also going to be talking later about that uh, decision by the administration to uh, buy the Olympics and uh, to uh, give it... Uh, free to uh, uh, TV stations, uh, although not RTHK, uh, in Hong Kong. We'll be talking about the uh, the business side of that later. We want to hear your thoughts as well. Interesting kind of uh, discussion going on on that topic already on the Facebook page. That's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. I suggest you uh, have a look and uh, check that out. Uh, um, let's see. S says, sorry to say, but the quality of English language TVB Pearl programmes has really gone down. There are hardly any professional news readers. The chit-chat before the sports news looks more like a soap opera and now there are promos of other programs in the main news it's nice to hear uh, people bad mouthing other stations apart from rthk the weather forecast sunny periods very hot during the day temperatures up to 33 degrees 29 degrees at the moment relative humidity is now at 79 percent towards researching stealing and exploiting vulnerabilities using more complex attacks to avoid detection and developing new techniques to target information and communications technology supply chains you're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is uh, Backchat on a Wednesday morning with Steve Vines and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about uh, population issues. We were focusing uh, in part on the mainland in the uh, first part of the programme. We also wanted to talk about the situation uh, in Hong Kong and population patterns, uh, uh, partly inspired by uh, a survey uh, earlier this week saying that uh, uh, more than half of uh, respondents uh, to a Women's Development Association uh, survey said they didn't have enough money, space, or time to uh, raise a child. Later, we're also going to be talking about the decision by the administration to uh, purchase the uh, Olympics, the rights to show the uh, Japan Olympics uh, in Hong Kong and to uh, give them to uh, various TV stations uh, in Hong Kong. We'll be talking about that from a business angle uh, later in the programme. We want to hear from you as well. You can email backchat at rthk.hk. You can go to our Facebook page and say what you like. That's backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Or you can just pick up the phone and call us on 233 
We've got a few uh, emails uh, which we'll get to maybe uh, between our two topics uh, today. Um, uh, Professor Bacon Schoen is, is with us, Director of the Social Sciences Research Centre at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Bacon Schoen, so I mean the, that, that survey talked about uh, uh, money, space and time uh, as, the, uh, as the missing ingredients for uh, people who are considering whether or not to, to have a family. Does that sort of uh, tally with, uh, with surveys that you've done and uh, your sense of what's going on? The, those, those the Family Planning Association survey that, uh, that Paul Yip oversaw, right, it's clear that the reasons there, but number one reason there particularly was money, right? So money continues to be an issue. And number two was the responsibility. And I think number three was, was living space. So I think those clearly are important reasons why people choose not to have either a first child or a second child. There's no question about that. But I think you will find at least those to be relatively important in almost any city. Right? So generally in cities, particularly space is a problem almost in every city. But I think there is no question also that there is more the government can do. So as I mentioned, the one thing the government has done in the last five years is at least improve financial support for kindergarten education. So that's one positive step. Surely another step, I mean, this is the bigger thing, is, is the space thing, which you was just mentioning. Um, you know, sure. we, we, the, the, the state of the housing stock is still abysmal. Yeah, I think there's absolutely no question on that. I'm, I'm, I'm not a housing specialist, but I, I did do work, uh, which I should declare, for the, for the previous task force uh, on space, right, on, on space for housing. So there's... There's no question, however, then we come to this other challenging issue about where does the government get the space from? You know, is, Brown, is Brownfield sufficient or do we need to do reclamation? So obviously there, there is a lot of people in the community who are not happy with reclamation. So then we have to deal with those challenges. So I think one of the problems with, with space is that people often see it as, in effect, the government providing space for the property developers rather than thinking it about you know, we, we need this space in order for our flats to be a reasonable size, which I think is, is the appropriate framing. I think that's the balancing issue we have to think about. Uh, even if we don't like reclamation, maybe uh, it's necessary if we are to have a reasonable living space to, to live in. Something kind of related to that is, is a question of work-life balance, and I think that's something that this association sure. did highlight as well, talking about uh, uh, working hours. They said there should be a law on, on standard working hours. Of course, that didn't really get anywhere, did it? They, they sort of uh, half-moved that in, in LegCo. Um, uh, and I think, I think the link issue in this last year or so has been working from home, mm. right? So I think, in effect... People, I mean, for, for good public health reasons, people have been largely working from home. But Hong Kong living environments, I think, have made that extremely difficult, both for the for the adults who are trying to work and for the children who are who are essentially trying to do their education. So to expect people in in Hong Kong size living quarters to basically both work and live that obviously puts intense stress on everybody in the family. It makes it very difficult for the adults to work and for the children to be educated. We, we also heard in the bulletin just a moment ago um, this new survey from AmCham talking about 42% of their members considering or planning to leave. I, I, first of all, I understand that is just their members, so it doesn't tell you about the sure. wider 
um, expatriate population. But, I mean, there does seem to be a sense that, that people from other countries are uprooting. I wonder what impact that's going to have. Well, so, I mean, so let, let's go back a stage. I mean, if you think about Hong Kong's history since the Second World War, it has always been a very mobile population, right? So the, the absolute number of people coming and going to Hong Kong has been high, not just in relative terms, but in absolute terms. So, so that's always been part of Hong Kong's culture. Now, that's not to say it doesn't cause intense stress, and it's not to say that it doesn't damage Hong Kong in certain ways. So clearly, uh, in the earlier discussion, right, if people who've grown up in Hong Kong and been educated here then leave rather than staying to, to, to join the workforce, that's very bad for Hong Kong's economy. And similarly, if you've got, say, American citizens who previously came here to set up businesses leaving, that's also bad for the economy. So there is no question about it. And in fact, so, I mean, I have been following the, the Facebook group on people who are worried about uh, being put in, in quarantine. And there clearly is a lot of very unhappy people on how the quarantine procedures have been implemented. Although the government has, in these last few days, backed off a little bit, I think the I, I think this whole issue about vaccination and quarantine does upset people, uh, and those are things which are within the Hong Kong government's control. National security law, you can argue, maybe is not entirely within the Hong Kong government's control because it's it's been defined by Beijing. But I think the areas where the government can do something, it does need to take better action. It does need to think more carefully. I think about. Uh, how to encourage people to get vaccinated, how to make sure that the quarantine procedures are fit for purpose and are not a burden, and that the living conditions in quarantine are, are indeed appropriate. And, and I think even some of the hotels, uh, there have been pictures going around about the food that's been offered, which has been quite unappealing, to put it politely. <laughs> so well, I think I, I'm a Penny's Bay former resident. I can again, confirm I everything you've heard. That civil servants are perhaps not the best people to deal with some of these issues, but I think they do have to do more in order to make people feel that Hong Kong is a, a good place to live and a good place to stay. And, and clearly that more needs to be done. That I think that is without question. And, and just referring back to something you, you said, I mean, looking at the history of that, I, I think I'm right in saying that the history of migration in Hong Kong, at least since the 1960s, has always been more people um, coming in than going out. That seems to be the trend. Well, I, I think it's right? fair to say it's generally been relatively low-educated people coming in from the mainland and, and better-educated people leaving. I think that's, that's a fair summary of what's happened for a long time. Right. So I think the one-way permit scheme, which Paul Yip and I have, have written on in the past and researched in some detail, but even then, I think there has been a lot of stigma about people coming in from the mainland. The perception is that the education was low, but that's because people weren't distinguishing the children from the adults. So, in fact, most of the people, most of the adults who come in through the one-way permit scheme these days are not poorly educated. And obviously, if children come when they're young, they, they become like any other Hong Kong person. Um, but it's true. There have been times, if you like, when more educated people have left. So after June 4th and before 1997, a lot of well-educated people left. Some of them came back. Some of them didn't. Uh, and, and 
I think some of the ones who, some of the local ones who leave now, some of them will come back. But maybe, as, as Paul said, maybe they won't <coughs> if they feel that things haven't improved. Right? But I think the, the whole world is struggling right now with the consequences of the virus. So economies around the world, it may not be easy for people to get jobs uh, in, the, in the current environment. So they, they, you know, some of them may come back. But again, it's up to the Hong Kong government, I think, to do their part to try and make it look, make Hong Kong a place where, it is, where people want to come and stay or want to come back to. Yeah, you mentioned the, the one-way permits. Are, 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 I mean, because for a long time, they, they weren't actually, the whole quota wasn't being used up. Do we have right. latest figures? Do you know over the last couple of years since all the disruption, well, I think, I think what's the, happening? The quotas are still not being fully utilised. In fact, I, I mean, the people don't want to come to Hong Kong anymore. We, we should just say don't this want is 150 people per day. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I recommend to the government that they should essentially wind up the one-way permit scheme by allowing people to come much quicker uh, and then treating them as immigrants in the same way as immigrants from anywhere else in the world. I believe that there are opportunities to do that, but that requires trust in the government, that people don't see this as another issue of being swamped by mainlanders. So I think the, the political situation is unfortunate, because actually having those people coming into Hong Kong and growing, so children in particular, that, so one of the studies that Paul and I looked at was about the age of children coming to Hong Kong, and the, uh, and the evidence was very clear if they come at primary school and below primary school, so if they come at kindergarten age or younger, they're indistinguishable from any Hong Kong child. The older they come, the harder it is to, for them to adjust to the Hong Kong system and the Hong Kong education system. So I think, you know, that, again, these are issues which the government could address. Um, but again, that, that's only that's the entry side, if you like. The, the exit side is also very important that people don't feel the need to leave because they feel that they can have a good life here. Yeah. And are they fugitives? Are they being treated uh, explicitly or implicitly by the administration as essentially fugitives? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a political scientist. I don't really want to comment on that part. But I think, you know, the, the reality is that quality of life issues are clearly within the government's control, right? So whether it's housing... Uh, whether it's education and and um, and you know quarantine issues, all of these things are within the government's control. They can do better, I believe, to, to make Hong Kong a better place to live. Because I think ultimately, for all cities, this is the issue: is that people will leave in some cases because they want more space. But the re but what you want is that young, well-educated people can continue to come there because they can see economic opportunity. Uh, and a way to have a good life. Okay, well, many thanks for uh, joining us. John Bacon Chown, the Director of Social Sciences Research Centre at the University of Hong Kong. Um, thanks very much indeed for that. Some some uh, emails on uh, and comments on Facebook on, on uh, various aspects. Uh, James, uh, so it's a stream of consciousness, this James. I'll do my best. James not Joyce, says, Good morning, Hugh. Thank you for an almost non-COVID back chat. Curiously, around the world, we haven't seen a pandemic baby pandemic. Let's go 1970s here. Carry on up the jab. Based on empirical evidence, I conclude it's due to lockdown and resulting dietary and drinking behaviour. Fried chicken and cheap beer are not necessarily good bedfellows. She's fat and I don't even know what day of the week it is. Whatever happened to that Vines guy on the radio? He was funny. 
that comes from James. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. What did happen to him? For that. <laughs> no idea. Um, Paul, uh, uh, in an email, says, I was just on my morning constitutional along the waterfront from Kennedy Town to Central and back and enjoying the beautiful scenery when a young girl in a blue uniform who was watering the trees turned and told me to put my mask on. I declined, saying that it wasn't necessary since I was exercising. On my return leg, some 30 minutes later, the same girl, now sitting by a flower bed, again told me to put my mask on. I politely told her that she should stop saying this as there were hundreds of people exercising along the waterfront, either walking, jogging or running without masks, as they were entitled to do. At this point, another older lady standing by nearby chipped in and asked that if I was exercising, why wasn't I running? I replied, I'm pushing 70. I've got a bad back and my joints are shot, so this is the best I can do. Not that it's any of your business. I could feel my blood pressure rising at this point. She replied, I don't believe you, and took a few quick pictures with her phone for the family album. Is this a sign of the times? Should I be expecting the dreaded midnight knock on my front door? And have any other listeners had a similar experience? Yours anxiously. That is Paul. Thank you very much indeed for that. Anyone else? Uh, yeah, Andrew Kay uh, says, uh, who on the subject of Carmen Lau, on Hong Kong Today this morning, this woman explained her resignation. Sounded like a football manager or uh, IS Democrat. What absolute rubbish. To be fair, your reporter asked good questions, but she just refused to answer them. One wonders why she consented to uh, an interview. And uh, finally, sir, we wanted to turn, as I mentioned, to the issue of uh, the Olympics with the uh, administration securing uh, the broadcast rights for uh, Tokyo uh, 2020. Uh, we're joined uh, now in our central studio by uh, James Ross, who's, of course, a familiar voice on uh, RTHK uh, Radio. So he's also CEO of Lightning International, a media and content rights consultancy and distributor uh, based in Hong Kong. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, uh Steve. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. So we, we've had this kind of quite spectacular uh, move by the administration, uh, I think pretty unexpected to, to buy the rights in, in this way. Do other governments do this? Do you know of? Uh, it's not actually very common, but of course, behind a lot of the public broadcasters there uh, are the governments. For instance, Singapore, of course, controls Mediacorp, which is the only broadcaster in Singapore. It's fully owned by the government. That indeed inquired, um, acquired the uh, Olympic rights. I mean, CCTV, as we know, controlled by uh, the Chinese government, uh, that paid half a billion US dollars. Uh, for the Olympic rights uh, for two uh, Summer Olympics and um, two Winter Olympics. So it's not um, uncommon. It's sort of unusual, perhaps, that they've dived in almost up against uh, individual uh, broadcasters to acquire the rights. But it had been quite clear for some time that none of the uh, broadcasters really were that interested in paying probably $15, $16 million, which is what was paid last time. Perhaps more. There was some speculation a couple of years ago that uh, the price of acquiring two Summer Olympics in Hong Kong might rise as much as to around 70 million US dollars based on a comparison with um, CCTV. So um, it's not completely surprising, but uh, perhaps uh, a little bit unusual. And James, I mean, presumably the lack of enthusiasm by commercial broadcasters to, to put up their money for this sort of thing isn't just in Hong Kong, and it does indicate maybe... A, a, a problem, general economic problems they have, or maybe it just is their judgment that the Olympics aren't worth what they used to be. 
Well, I think it depends on who you, you talk to. If you look around the world, um, some of the big broadcasters have put huge amounts of money uh, into Olympics. Uh, the uh, last contract from NBC in the US was worth five billion uh, US dollars. They've just renewed it uh, through to 2032. That's worth seven and a half billion dollars. Uh, Discovery, which owns Eurosport in Europe, has spent about a billion dollars on Olympic rights. So uh, there is there is money out there to buy them. But actually, if you're looking for a straight return on the cost in the short term, it's pretty difficult. I mean, in the last Olympics in, uh, in Rio and in Beijing, they were paying 15, 16 million US dollars in Hong Kong for the rights. Uh, IK Doesn't seem like much and TVB. to me. Yeah, but mm. you've got to get a return back in three weeks. Mm. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. They've basically got to make that money back in, in three weeks of Olympic uh, sport. Well, if you compare it with something like the Premier League, which, of course, is much more expensive to buy... Uh, it's estimated that um, PCGW spent uh, about 200 million uh, US dollars for three years of the Premier League. 200 million US, okay, US right. dollars, yeah, only. Oh. Um, uh, which is actually less than the previous uh, incumbent. Uh, LETV, LETV uh, bought them prior to that for about 400 million uh, US dollars. So it's quite a reduction. But sorry, sorry, sorry. When you said 15 or 16 for, for million for Hong Kong, were you talking? Uh, uh, always talking US dollars. That's US dollars. TV oh, rights. I see. Oh, TV oh, rights okay, are always. Right. Um, I beg your pardon. Okay, right. It's okay. okay. Um, so, you know, to, to get 200 million back or, or, or okay, get yeah. value for 200 million back over three years is quite relatively straightforward. But to get 15 or 16 million US dollars back over three weeks is, is pretty tough in terms of advertising. And I don't think either of the broadcasters really uh, did it to make money. It was more they felt that the prestige um, drawing people into the programs was, was worthwhile. And, you know, it was almost a, a loss leader. And the, they get oh. subscribers as well, presumably people sign up. Yeah, people sign up and, you know, in theory you can, if you're on, a pay TV, on the pay TV side, um, then you get people signed up for a sort of minimum of 12, uh, 12 months, often 24 months, so that's pretty good. But it's not a huge lift generally from that uh, perspective. Uh, for, TV, for TVB, of course, it's just um, straight advertising normally. And, I mean, what's interesting about the government's decision here is that among the stations who've, who will get the, 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 the free distribution are stations which people have to subscribe to. So it won't be free to air for all viewers. I mean, admittedly, they don't need to watch those stations, but it is interesting. I don't think I've heard, maybe you could think of an example, of a government buying up uh, an intellectual property, which in fact is what this is, and then offering it on a, on a partially limited basis. Uh, I don't think there's any particular examples, but on the other hand, sometimes full rights for these kind of uh, uh, big um, uh, sports events actually are split between free and pay, with with some highlights, um, you know, put on free to air. So in the UK, for instance, there are there are certain regulations that certain sports events have to be shown on free to air. But it doesn't mean that all of the games or all of them uh, of the the parts of the event have to be shown. And sometimes, if you want wider uh, coverage, for instance, in the UK, you might go to Sky or one of the pay TV providers, but you would still see the highlights or the main games on the BBC or ITV or one of the free to air TV stations. So that's that's not uncommon. And I think what's going to happen uh, for the next Olympics, for instance, in the UK, Eurosport, which is owned by Discovery, has bought all of the rights for, for Europe. Um, and it will be sub-licensing back to the BBC. Previously, the BBC has bought the rights directly from the IOC uh, for around £75 million. Pounds. Um, and uh, going forward, Discovery has acquired those rights, but it will sub-license some of the rights back to the BBC, and some of the rights will be on uh, pay TV. 
So lots of different things, lots of different models around the world, and honestly, every country uh, has a has a different way of doing it. But uh, what is clear is that there's always an outcry if the Olympics aren't available for some reason in a particular country or territory. Everybody thinks it's their right to see the Olympics, and so you know, I guess in in this instance, there, there's quite some pressure for for somebody to show them. Hmm. And they're quite tight on the rights, aren't they? I know we've, for us at, in RTHK, uh, when we're trying to report on the Olympics, um, you can't use clips of events uh, and things like this. It's really you can you, you can have a reporter there who can stand outside the uh, stadium, but you can't have them reporting inside and things like that. They're, they're quite strict, aren't they? They're absolutely strict, and really for business reasons, for commercial mm-hmm. reasons, because if someone's going to spend a huge amount of money uh, on buying those rights and 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 getting that uh, particular uh, right to to air the Olympics, they they don't want other people just doing it for free. I'm not necessarily defending it, but uh, that's the commercial mm-hmm. um, model, uh, and and that is pretty much the same around the world. So in fact, what seems to be happening here is it's it's actually going to be very open. So pretty much anybody can um, talk about the Olympics, cover the Olympics uh, in Hong Kong. And I think... Um, well, except sorry. RTHK. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yes, and I, I, I understand that. But I think there are some resource issues at RTHK. RTHK, is, as we know, does not have uh, a big events and sports division for covering this kind of thing. Um, I don't know if there are any deeper rights there, but uh, uh, deeper reasons there. But um, for sure, it would be pretty difficult for RTHK to cover it at the, at the level that um, commercial broadcasters have done uh, in the past. But, but don't James, you just plug oh, in sorry, the feed? Don't you just uh, plug in the That's the point, f- isn't it? They're only getting the feed. They're not getting well, access. Yeah, certainly the Olympic Broadcast Services Company produces the, the, the coverage, and for sure you could just plug in the straight world feed, if you like. But, of course, um, focusing on Hong Kong events, every country will focus the Olympics on the events that it's involved in. And so there is quite a lot of work with extra commentary that has to be produced. For instance, the um, you know the the uh, Hong Kong events, they would re- require uh, Cantonese commentary and the um, Olympics uh, broadcasting services would not provide that necessarily. So there's, co- there's localization. you have to zoom in on different uh, events. Um, it's not impossible, of course, but it is more difficult. And certainly TVB, um, iCable and uh, now have much more experience at doing this kind of thing. And does that mean they will have the right to have their people inside the stadia when these events are going on? For sure, they could do. Although, you know, Is a lot it for of sure. I mean, oh, they definitely would. Six, six stations, uh, uh, if you like, subletting it from from a. From the government. I, I'm sure that they can have their people in the stadium if they wanted to, if they were allowed because of COVID, and if they wanted to travel to Tokyo for COVID. More likely is that they'll commentate off tube, as we call it. They will actually watch on screen and commentate here in Hong Kong mm. in Cantonese or with particular regard to the Hong Kong aspects of the of the games. Right. Assuming they go ahead. Assuming they go ahead, <laughs> and that seems to be uh, still in some doubt. Yeah, so uh, quite a few uh, emails uh, on this. Uh, 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 some uh, for, some uh, against the uh, decision. Mr Tang says, I must applaud the government for securing the broadcast rights of Tokyo 2020 and making the Olympics freely accessible to Hong Kong viewers. The results of a recent survey said that kids have become more physically active amid COVID-19. I think they've become less physically active. Uh, so being able to watch the Olympics could be a game changer. 
Uh, promotion of sports can be done effortlessly too with the broadcasting of the games as the events are held in an Asian city this year, meaning fans need not get up in the middle of the night to watch the competitions. With many Hong Kong athletes securing an entry ticket to Tokyo 2020, citizens have something to look forward to. Cheer our Hong Kong athletes on. China, with countless elite athletes partaking in the events, will probably win many medals in both individual and team events, such as table tennis, gymnastics, swimming and volleyball. I remember back in the Beijing Olympics in 2008, I was cheering so hard for the China basketball team and volleyball team. Hope that the Hong Kong population can reignite their passion for sports and support both uh, China and Hong Kong athletes. That's uh, from uh, Mr. Tang. Uh, MT says if stroke when the Tokyo Olympics are cancelled, will the Hong Kong government get our money back? Yes, they will, actually. Yes, I think that was, uh, that was mentioned as a clause. Uh, the MT, I think that, uh, I hope that answers that. Uh, Alan says so the government is now micromanaging all TV stations, forcing them to stop the Oscars, not explicitly but obviously nonetheless, now they must carry the Olympics and we all know what the focus of that coverage will be expected to be meanwhile literally erasing RTHK video archives of embarrassing news reports and dumping programmes and staff who don't toe the line Winston Smith is very busy in Hong Kong now that comes uh, from uh, Alan Winston Smith in 1984. Uh, Pat from Wan Chai says it's very generous of the taxpayer to acquire the Olympics viewing rights, though I'm keen to know how generous. Why on earth can't we be told? But surely if the TV companies make additional advertising revenue as a result, the taxpayer should be refunded by the same amount. That's uh, from Pat from uh, Wan Chai. Uh, CW says, well done to the Hong Kong government for arranging the live coverage of this year's Olympics. Great boost for Hong Kong sports fans, especially as it's not possible to travel to Japan to watch the uh, Olympics. Uh, and uh, some discussion, as I mentioned, on the uh, Facebook page. Howard says, putting aside the very real possibility that the Olympics will be cancelled, why is the government getting involved in what should be a commercial matter? Maybe next year the government will buy the local broadcasting rights for the Oscars. And uh, Dan says, the Oscars were a disaster, Howard. Basically an infomercial for the world of woke. Uh, they deservedly had some of the lowest ratings ever. Waste of money to carry it and time to watch. Uh, Howard says, that's not my point, Dan. Uh, Horatio says, when pretty much the whole city neither trusts nor like the government, in particular the CE. This is another example of grandiose delusion on the part of the regime, or more precisely, more desperate measures to control the local media. Hong Kong people will use any opportunity to exercise their right to voice, including boycott watching the Olympics on TV, like CCTVB, even if free. Do everyone's favour, concentrate on solving the problem at hand, which is safe food at Penny's Bay, and encourage vaccination or donate the unused vaccine to your needy neighbours. Marcus says, uh, I wonder how well Carrie recalls the little girl that had to mime the CCP anthem because while the little that sang it had to hide away because she wasn't pretty enough. That's the CCP spirit of sportsmanship. Also for the TV rights, why has TVB ever had rights secured as the government broadcaster for any global sporting event, not even the Rugby Sevens? Well, we just get it cut off by the news when parts of it are on. And uh, finally, Matthew, uh, on a different topic, says, surprise, surprise, uh, AP has revealed that the CCP has an army of fake fans on Twitter boosting their messages. I hope RTHK or others will investigate the patriotic new listener cadre, which suddenly appeared and began sending daily pro-CCP emails to be read out on Backchat from July 2019 in an attempt to dominate the programme's narrative. It's clearly an orchestrated effort with several similar messages each day sent under different but similar-sounding Western names, 
spruiking party propaganda talking points. The host even had to request that people not use multiple names and email accounts a couple of times. On Monday, they all suddenly attacked Professor Ben Cowling as one. Please expose this while you still can. That comes from Matthew. Matthew and everyone else, thank you very much indeed for joining us. James, thank you very much indeed for uh, enlightening us there. He's the CEO of uh, Lightning International, a media and a content rights consultancy and a distributor based uh, in Hong Kong. Steve, many thanks to you. And uh, the weather, there's a very hot weather warning at the moment and sunny periods forecast for today. It's going to be very hot, temperatures up to 33 degrees. One or two isolated showers and the outlook, it'll be persistently hot in the next couple of days. Maximum temperatures up to 32 degrees uh, or above and a few isolated showers as well. 29 Celsius now, relative humidity is at 77%. Amid the pandemic, we still need to carry on our work and daily lives. All of us wish to stay healthy and avoid being infected. Vaccination is one of the most effective ways to protect yourself and your family. It also helps us resume normal life earlier. Protection starts 14 days after the second dose. Remember to maintain personal hygiene and wear a mask. Protect yourself and others. Let's get vaccinated. 9.33, the news now with Samantha Butler. The Hong Kong Sports Institute, Lam Tai Fai, says the government can consider buying the broadcasting rights of future Olympic Games. He was speaking on an RTHK program after the government yesterday announced it had purchased the telecast rights to the Tokyo Games for Hong Kong people to watch for free. A survey of members of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong shows more than 40% plan to or are considering leaving, with most citing the national security law as one reason. Over 320 members, or 24%, responded to the AmCham survey last week, showing 42% considered leaving within the next five years, with more than a quarter saying they would do so before year-end. And the United Nations Middle East Peace Envoy has warned that the conflict between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza is escalating towards full-scale war. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? You're not too bad at all. Good morning. You've got a sporty. Hello. You never face got chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Very good morning to you. Welcome once again to The Morning Brew. It's the Wednesday version. 10.40 today, we're going to meet playwright Neil Harris, whose original piece, Fendborg, is to be performed very soon as a public reading. Now, it's a manifestation of his lifelong fascination with the great 20th century poet, playwright and theatrical reformer, the guy who really shook things up, Bertolt Brecht, the man who did away with the fourth wall, kind of involved you as an audience, and essentially gave us warts and all theatre. That'll be after 10.30. After 11.30, RTL France's Philippe Dovar will be with us for more from his home country and another French musical tribute. And then Chris Watts is going to be on hand to fix your hamstrings. That's a massive issue. After 12, so join him on air and on Facebook Live.